0: Hello to what we might call the Christmas edition of Moments That Rock, brought to you via the Pantheon group of podcasts. My name's Tony Michael I'm the host. I'd like to wish you all a very happy Christmas and prosperous new year. But then again, you might be listening to this in the middle of June. Who knows? But uh, anyway, have a good time. I won't tell you who this is, other than she's a splendid lady. She interviewed me on her travel podcast about a year ago. And why wouldn't I have her back? Because she spent some time within the music industry. I won't introduce her because I let them do their own introductions.
1: Hi, I'm Lisa Francesca and I'm a journalist and host of The Big Travel Podcast.
0: So briefly, tell us your music history, Lisa, and how you got involved in live entertainment and stuff and things and um, really share moments that rocks your world.
1: Well, I always wanted to work in music. You could say that I'm a failed musician and I'm also a failed person who works in music because I haven't worked directly in music for a while now, so I've just failed at everything. I mean, I have become a journalist and you know worked with some very high-profile people, including musicians. But um, my brother took on the music uh, playing mantle when we were kids. And um, on our way down to Spain, when I was seven years old, our parents took us to live in Spain. And our way down to Spain, my brother was given a, an acoustic guitar, and uh, he became a, a very uh, prolific and uh, well-known in his field guitarist but we did have this magical childhood in Spain where I was performing I was performing so I was on stage singing and dancing and acting and he was playing in like all these cool bands and stuff around the town so we had this really um for a tiny little town in in Spain growing up it's time called Frangarola we had this incredible live music scene with with loads of um of rock and guitar and drummers and just bars everywhere with great music. So I was always really, really exposed to that. And then on top of that, I was getting my own sort of pop music influences coming through from the UK until I was about sort of like 13 or something. And then I discovered the 60s and I just went all in, into you know sixties su- hippiedom psychedelia. Got obsessed with like bands like The Doors. And I tell you what, when you're growing up in Southern Spain and it's really sunny, those sort of ca- those Californian sounds from the sixties are absolutely perfect for an eighties late eighties. Yeah, look old enough. 60s? No, well, no, I, I'm not old enough. But that was you know I was oh, growing right. up in the eighties. But it, those California sounds coming from the sixties really translated well to. Andalusia in the 1980s and the early 1990s, when we had these uh, incredible beachy lifestyles and you know music to go to in bars every night, and everyone had motorbikes, and it, it translated really well. So that became my fir- my preferred um, musical era. So it is wonderful, and whenever I go to uh, to LA to visit my brother, I really you know feel that musical history. And in fact, when I when I came to live in the UK, I just turned 16, and I moved to Brighton. Um, and I felt it here as well and I think that's what I really love about Brighton and London and indeed places like Manchester and Liverpool you know those British cities where music is made you know history is made in terms of popular culture culture and music and I came here as a wise-eyed sort of 15, 16 year old having grown up you know almost barefoot on the Costa del Sol looking, lis- listening to all this rock and um, I came here and it was the most magical place of you know, just just to know that, you know, bands like uh, The Who, you know, in particular, that, that association with Brighton and walking down the road and seeing like, you know, the Quadrophenia Passage and, you know, all of these sort of musical heroes of mine. So I tried to work in the uh, in the music industry and I got a um, I had a musician who was a, a boyfriend on the day we finished university. Um, we decided he was just a um he was a uh, a guitarist, a singer-songwriter. And on the day we finished university, we decided to, uh, well, it was the night before, so we were a bit drunk. And we decided to, uh, should we stay in Brighton and do gigs over the summer and, uh, and earn some money to go travelling? Or should we go, I don't know, to Amsterdam? Let's flip a coin, you know. And it was tails. let's go to Amsterdam for the summer and try and earn some money playing in bars. Now, at this point, I, for some reason, I'd lost all my confidence and I just stopped singing, even though that was something that I wanted to do. And I let him do all the performing. Occasionally, I'd uh, I'd go and do a little bit of backup. But um, we were performing in bars all over Holland and Belgium, like these big Irish bars, um, which were just a huge thing at the time. Again, this sort of real... History of live music and and pubs. And actually, sometimes we were just playing for beer. I mean, we were really, really skint. But there was this incredible community of of Irish-accented Dutch people who were obsessed with with live music and indeed Ireland and had all these, like, quite strong accents. And you'd say, you know, what part are you from? They'd go like, "Um, you know, (laughs) the Netherlands had never even been to Ireland. But it was, again, this really beautiful, beautiful place, uh, uh, you know, very creative and not much money. Um, and we came back having not afforded to go travelling the world with our trails between our legs. But then I did get, manage to get a, a job, my first proper job in music once I got back to Brighton.
0: I love the, the use of the word culture and stuff, because if you go back to that era, I mean, the friends you hung out with, the relationship you have, whether they were personal relationships, it was just friendships and stuff.
1: Exactly. <laughs> it was that connection. I went recently to a, a, a talk um uh, from irvin welsh uh obviously author of train spotting and many other things and he was talking about um how in the 90s so now i'm back in in the i'm in the uk and in amsterdam and everything in the 90s and have that how that sort of um that uh rave culture and dance culture of that time brought people together that became families you know and actually those those people are, are, you know are, are still that i met them in the clubs are still some of my you know my best friends today you know the amount of a uh, bonding you do uh, over music and it was to that sort of scene that i came back well before i went to amsterdam as well but came back and i got a job with um with a, a festival at the time called the Essential Festival, it was really big in in Sussex, and they put on used to put on these big festivals in Stammer Park. Um, it was just called the Essential Festival, and it was the, 1999, the year of the eclipse, and they were putting on this big festival with Harvey Goldsmith and. Um, who was the other person? I've forgotten. Another another big promoter. Harvey Goldsmith was the main uh, guy, main company as well. And uh, and the Essential Festival. And I was tasked, along with my friend Sarah, of doing the press for all the festival. So then we got involved in like the music press, you know, when we were like phoning up NME and Melody Maker and, you know, all the dance music press at the time because it had a really heavy dance and uh, and roots uh, vibe to it, uh, probably a little bit out of Harvey Goldsmith's comfort zone because he's used to be more, more doing more mainstream, uh, you know, rock and and, and so, pop. Sorry, how old dance. were you then? So I was um, I was in my, I was about 25, actually, 25, yeah. Because,
0: I mean, you kind of started at the top with Harvey Goldsmith.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, it was, that was my first job in, yeah, no, it was really lucky. In fact, I just walked into the office of um, Ish, the uh, very uh, charismatic owner of Essential Festival, who was a, thought he was, still is a formidable character. And I walked into their office and said, you got any jobs going? He's like, can you start now? And I was like, OK. And that's kind of how it went uh, with it. But he was really, really lovely, warm person with a hard exterior, but really, really lovely warm person. And so we'd have to go up to, you know, to the offices in Camden with Harvey Goldsmith. Harvey would be there. And he, you know, is quite an intimidating character for your first job in music. And um and, uh, and then the, the festival is actually quite a bad, not a, a positive story because it really failed as did all the Eclipse festivals. I have no idea why, but people just didn't buy tickets. Um, and, uh, and you know, I, I did go there and I just, you know, went through with it all I was meeting all these amazing people at the time the acts uh that were there were lots of uh, dance music DJs and, and roots people like I said but um I was meeting all these amazing band managers uh including a m- wonderful man called Jake Jake was managing the Rolling Stones at the time and also for a long time managed uh uh Wham when we went like when they're really big like went to Japan he was just he's just a I'm sure he's still around there I don't know if he remembers me And uh, there were people, managers, all these excellent bands, and it was really good to be a part of it. And so the festival didn't go well, but I did a really good job. I worked my ass off, you know, worked for like 24 hours a day on site and looked after all the press, looked after all the management, looked after all the artists. Um, So Jake said to me, he said, um, oh, we've got another freelance job with directly with Harvey um it, in, a, in a couple of months time do you want to come and work on it and I was like yes please and that led to my, my probably my biggest uh rock and roll moment uh which was working backstage at Wembley. So you must have met
0: a lot of artists and stuff and obviously like I said before I can feel the passion at this end do you feel that the what you went on to do for the Remainder of your career, you learnt a lot from your time in the industry. I mean, even wow. that, even that admission of of I, I've started as. I mean, everyone starts. As, I mean, and I was a
1: bass player, um, but I was like a lousy bass player. So, just tell me a little bit more well i'm a professional talker, so you know, it's kind <laughs> of taken me a while to get to that point, but I am a professional talker um the I've, I've been really fortunate to meet, to meet lots of well known and interesting people um during my time as a journalist, but actually music and and including musicians, but musically, probably the peak of, of you know of that was this gig that we did backstage uh, for for harvey goldsmith, so Jake brought me on as artist liaison assistant, and this was a Massive undertaking by Harvey and team that seems to have been forgotten by so many people. So it wasn't Live 8, which I did go to. It was something called Netoad, and I don't know if you remember that. But I occasionally I speak to a couple of people. Go, I was there. Nobody talks about it. It was ahead of its time. So it was just September of 1999, and Harvey and other people, of course, got together to. I think it was five massive concerts around the world to perform at them at the same time and them to be on the internet so that's when we called it you know net age that was the uh the name so I was doing the artist liaison um assistant for the Wembley gig so I was backstage at Wembley and I'm looking at the list of the artists coming and I'm thinking oh my god you know this is big uh David Bowie Rolling Stones uh Bush were coming over from the states the Eurythmics Robbie Williams, um, just like huge, huge acts of the time. And, um, it was when I'm sort of like getting everything ready. You know, there's a lot of pressure because I also had to get the, um, the people introducing the acts on. So were people like, um, well, I remember Goldie actually particularly because he got stuck in traffic and I had to talk him in and he stole someone's bike and like, you know, with permission. And it was very funny, funny, um, but Angelica Houston and uh, Robbie did one, Robbie Williams. And so I, uh, David Genola, So uh, Ronan Keating, I had to get all, Oh, uh, Catherine Zeta-Jones as well. I spent a lot of time with her. And, um, I had to get these people sort of backstage and everything. At the same time, I'm suddenly realizing that there's some music coming from stage and it's David Bowie sound checking. <laughs> and I'm like, oh my God, you know, shivers. I'm backstage at Wembley and Bowie is out there sound checking. Um, probably the, the two pinnacle standout moments I remember from that. Um, Well, many, many moments, but um, Angelica Euston was coming to introduce David Bowie on stage because they had lots of famous people introducing the acts and uh, she hadn't met him before. So I had to take Angelica to meet David Bowie and uh, I, I took her up there knocked on David Bowie's dressing room door and uh, somebody, somebody else opened the door, but then he came quickly behind and he's like, oh, hi. And of course they recognise each other, you know, they, he knows what she looks like. and um, So I, I had to introduce basically, effectively, Angelica Houston to David Bowie.
0: Love it. You've been listening to Lisa Francesca Nand. uh, Stories about being a lousy failed musician. (laughs) We've all been there and done that. And, of course, time with Harvey Goldsmith and the like. Great storyteller. Love it. We'll be back with more from Lisa after this.
1: And then there was another point when I was like standing in the backstage bar, and I'm like, "That's Mick Jagger," you know. I was standing next to Mick Jagger, who in person just looks like a caricature of himself because he's so well known that he's got these incredible features, you know. So I'm standing there in the bar with David Bowie, Mick Jagger, Annie Lennox Robbie Williams, just these people that were just, you know, Dave Stewart. All these people that were just huge and and there, and it was it with was no just iPhones. a really special moment. <laughs> no iPhones no so I've got no no <laughs> photographic memory of this time at all uh not at all no it was it was just really really special it was a great gig and it's a shame if anyone remembers it or even worked on it let me know because it was just a, it, you know it was a was a success, but again, maybe because of the internet was in its infancy, you know, it just didn't get the post publicity that it that it should have done. Live eight was the next one, which I was at as well.
0: <laughs> no, that's insane with with a, a lineup like that, you know. I mean, if you mentioned David Bowie and Rolling Stones, what else do you have to say?
1: Well, exactly, yeah. But people were there; people were physically there. I need to look it up. There must be something on it about uh, on it and about it online. But actually, then in terms of my career in music um although i've worked and interviewed with a lot of musicians since um i accidentally took a job that day because i really needed the money and this is a, a, a you know a, a story for many free, freelance creatives including musicians and journalists and all the freelance creatives is that sometimes you get an offer jo- a job for money and it takes you off in a direction that you you rather not have gone to and um backstage with jake uh, a friend of his came backstage and uh, he offered me a job doing a big corporate event for Disneyland Paris and I speak French and um, I was going to be you know in charge of uh, getting these uh, huge floats uh, ready for the Millennium Parades. they were producing them in London with a London-based company and then driving them down to Paris which is a whole other story because it all went terribly wrong there were accidents there were bands of gypsies I had to get people out of prison in my A-level French but eventually it it was a it was a success but I ended up working in in corporate events and I'm like damn you know this is not It's really good, but it's not what I wanted to do. I wanted to be to be back in music and and actually eventually how I got back into that sort of, you know, excitement and more glamorous side was um, instead of working in music events after about three or four years of this accidental job I took, which was great, was glamorous, it was traveling the world, I was working, you know, doing the after party for the BAFTAs and Uh, lots of really interesting events Um, but it it didn't give me that sort of same buzz that music did and actually I I was going back to uh, I chose to go back to university to um, to train to be a journalist to sort of get me back into that thing although like never directly as a music event producer again
0: I'm getting the feel from just talking to you and looking at you you know this is great I love doing the side by side it's like a fireside chat you know um, I'm getting the feel that you learnt the hustle through the music business. Now I always say to people, we're all hustlers, but it's how you hustle.
1: I I absolutely did. I I have learned to hustle, and I really have to hustle. And I'm a a single mum, you know, on a freelance journalist's income, and I do I do have to hustle, and I still have to hustle now. And I think one of the things that working in music and in any creative industry like that teaches you is how to communicate with people at this level so i've had to you know speak to all sorts of big celebrities you know now different ones you know mps comedians authors journalists politicians you know you name it I, I speak to anyone and i think that sort of early experience in the music industry did you know give me the confidence to to just realize that actually these people they i mean they might be like music gods but they're just people at the end of the oh, day i you love know, that absolutely I was... just people
0: what I was going to say was I always found that, that the biggest artists were the easiest to, work, easiest to work with. I mean, having worked with Bowie myself, they realise it's not all about them. It's about assembling a team of people around you, building a culture, relationships. For me to work with David Bowie was like the equivalent of being knighted. But the point is that I don't think until later on you sit back and, and kind of appreciate it. It's that gratitude...
1: Um, but actually that, that just sort of takes me back to, uh, we're talking about Hyde, Hyde Park and back to Harvey Goldsmiths. And, um, when they did do what the official, uh, the follow-up, the, the actual official that people think it was follow-up to Live Aid, it was Live Eight. Do you remember that in, um, in hmm. Hyde Park? I'm guessing it was eight. Was it 2008? I'm guessing that was why it was eight. I'm not quite sure. Or maybe, maybe there be. was eight gigs or, yeah, I can't remember. Maybe and it was just for eight-year-olds. <laughs> maybe it was just for eight. It felt like we were eight at the time. It was so, um... It was really incredible. And I managed to sort of blag my way backstage with a few of my connections and, you know, see, I think The Who were playing. And I think actually, didn't Pink, I think Pink Floyd got together for that one, which was just, you know, incredible. I've got, um, Dave Gilmore lives down the road from me now. Uh, So he's occasionally, yeah, he just lives down the road here at home. you know him? Uh, No, He's always welcome on here, you know. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> I'm very tempted I do know um, somebody who's a, is higher, his manager but um, I, I'm very tempted to try and ask him. if I saw him believe me I'd ask yeah. him yeah, and actually gosh. also you know because my brother's a musician and he plays with some very well-known people he's connected to him so I I feel like I could start a conversation if I ever see him out there walking his dog and apparently he is out there uh, walking his dog uh, occasionally but no sadly I've, I've never seen him but they played at Live 8 and that was another you know massive musical moment but since then apart from interviewing you know musicians for my podcast and um I you know I do get two a, a few coming through Alex Capranos from uh, Franz Ferdinand I had on recently he was he was mm-hmm. amazing um and uh and then some sort of newer uh so Nina Nesbitt and uh, uh Freya Ridings you know some really good new artists coming out well, they're big now actually uh but not those sort of old, big old names that we're talking about so I do I do get to work with them but you know in music, I think, just I, I just get really excited. And one thing that I I kind of learned, and I think, and I, and what I love about you is you get this too. You get sometimes people who maybe in the beginning stroke middle of their careers who get really snotty about the work they do. They're like, oh yeah, whatever. And actually, there was this one. Um, woman a, a tour manager or a band manager that i was working with on that uh, first job with Harvey Goldsmith for the Eclipse Festival and i remember she was marrying uh, marrying she was managing a big band at the time and i was like you know i was like oh that's really exciting that's great you know what is it like is it really good managing this big band and she was like yeah it's fine you know like i was some sort of like stupid little girl and actually you know however many years 30 years later i'm still that wise-eyed little girl because I feel that it's great to be excited by it. it's great to you know be excited by these people who mean something to you or to, to to create amazing things you know whether that's the the shopkeeper that you interact with in the morning or David Bowie you know it's really good to still be excited and I I use that in my travels as well because You know, we everyone loves holidays. Most people love holidays and traveling and you relax and see things in a new way. But I try and do that with my hometown, you know, try the new coffee shop, walk down the back streets, look up at the buildings, you know, go and sit on the beach with that coffee and do all those things that you do on holiday. You know, take that feeling with you and never, ever lose that wide eyed passion for things. That's how I try and live my life.
0: It's so funny. I mean, God, it must be close on a year since you had me on your podcast. And I remember this moment vividly at the end of us talking. I was like, oh, you know, like blah, blah, blah. And I said, I said, I'm, I'm sorry. You know, at the end, it was the, the uh, compulsory apology. I said to you, oh, I'm sorry, Lisa, I fly off at tangents and things. But you know what? I don't want to lose that excitable child. You lent into the screen and said, Tony, I love that. <laughs> and your face lit up. And I wasn't trying to impress you, but it no. was like... The passion that is within. Now, tell me this. I, um, I'm i very cynical at certain, time, certain, uh, certain times about musicians. I mean, I think, you know, a lot of the time they're all insecure and needy. They don't trust a lot of people, you know. But I do feel that what you learnt as, dare I be as brutal as to say a failed musician, been yeah. there, done that. Your brother, right, Harvey Goldsmith in the same room as bowie and jagger you know you were a lucky not a lucky girl but you were a privileged girl in as much as you earned it right but do you find that um being a journalist, writing about and talking to these people subliminally those years in your youth whatever growing up and stuff do you feel those really helped you in front of a musician because they're really suspicious as journalists because a lot of the time and i know for a fact it's happened from my many years in the industry, where you can sit with a guy, a girl, whatever, have a beer with them in a pub for fifty minutes or something, and sometimes they'll pick up that one thing where you fucked up on,
1: yeah, <laughs> you said something yeah. you
0: shouldn't have done, and yeah. it's a headline. It's a headline, mm. and I find that a bit tacky because you just want sensationalism.
1: I think it was a, 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 a magical time and period. Of course, the the sixties, uh, the seventies, the eighties as well even the bands from the 90s and the early 2000s. And I do try my best to uh, to keep up with, with new music. I really do. But music is so uh, ubiquitous everywhere to buy it everywhere these days, which makes it more accessible, but it doesn't give that sort of, special status to those key artists who really managed to stand out from the crowds and I think to have those people, you know, the the, the Bowies, the Mick Jaggers, the Madonnas, the Shares, even like into the 80s, the Kylie Minogues, you know, um, and then later on the the really big bands of of the the 90s and and early 2000s, you know, I think to have those iconic people, it was a really they were special decades you know, it was a a long period of time, but they were special decades. And um, you you do get people now, you get people started, like the people that my kids admire are YouTubers, you know, they're people playing games online. Um, So those special people are still there. They've just changed direction, but to live in, you know, wow, what a time to have been a music fan and to have worked, you know, a long slide, even aside, just even just for a little bit you know in the decades that you've had you've had more decades than me and you know in terms that you had know, the 70s I was born in the 70s but it, it, what a time you know we've been, we have been really privileged and I think it really is important to see uh, you know to really appreciate that whilst I said that I don't, don't want to get like on the bad side of it but they, you know there's also like some dodgy things that these musicians you know <laughs> did you know but I know it was a different period so you know, I, while I do idolize them and I've been very, very lucky to, you know, to have met some of my idols, you know, I do acknowledge that it's for another time, you know, but there, there were things that, you know, that people did back in the, in those days that uh, would be, you know, rightly frowned upon now. It hasn't always been golden, but they they are still icons.
0: But uh, I find, you know, from where I came from, you like you say, it was a different time and a different place, but I do feel that, that you kind of grow into something like that. In those days, the industry was run by people who, who signed artists that could be in the record collection. My grooming was through the Chris Blackwells, the Armoured Ertigans. I worked with A&M, you know, with Herb Alpert and Jerry Moss. It, it's now satisfying shareholders and, and the corporate infrastructure. My kind of favourite topic in, in my career was artist development. And I heard you kind of go into that.
1: The other thing I should tell you about when you've got more time, but I, I should tell you about um, the 1990s scene that I was involved with in Brighton, because I was, like, doing a lot of stuff on the local radio here, but I was working in the clubs as well. But it was when, like, Norman Cook, Fat Boy Slim, formed Skint Records with my friend Damien, and that was, like, another sort of – that's one of your moments that rock as well.
0: And there you have it. Don't you love people's stories from within, inside the industry? You've been listening to Lisa Francesca Nand, Uh, This is Moments That Rock. I'm Tony Michaelides. We're part of the Pantheon Group of Podcasts. Enjoy the festive season and we will see you next week. Subscribe, enjoy, tell your friends and come back for more.
2: It's NFL Draft season and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football.